Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every Wednesday we talk specifically about all things corporate finance, from the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Okay, hello and welcome back to The Deal Room, where I'm joined by Stephen to talk about Yes, football. It's going to be a little bit of sports chatter here, but for anyone who's not a football or sports fan, do not worry because we're going to use it as a vehicle to talk about sports franchises and bring in the element of private equity, about about this comparable where we were just discussing a few numbers uh, before before the call, and it's pretty mind-blowing actually about how valuations work in this space and even investments comparative to things like your benchmark stock market in the US. So we really wanted to use this. And of course, we'll talk about, you know, Lionel Messi a little bit, talk about David Beckham and Pele a little bit, Um, but all for the purpose of educating you really around those financial kind of terms uh, and theories into kind of life and into practice through these examples. So Stephen, how's it, how's it going? Yeah, I'm pretty well, and I'm I'm very excited to be hosting sports podcast. It's it's my dream. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope I do it justice. But yeah, as you said, this is a this is such an interesting area. I love the business of sports. Maybe some people say it's ruined the beautiful game and things like that. But as a as a finance geek and as a sports fan, merging the two together, what could be better? Okay, so so the the to kick this off then, it's coming from the fact that Aries, the three hundred billion dollar alternative investment manager, they've invested another chunk of change into Inter Miami, which of course has come to the forefront because of Lionel Messi. I mean, did you see that? Was it the first game when he scored that goal in the very last second? I mean, you you literally the Netflix um, series is coming. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> but that aside, so um, there's been a, another investment, $75 million, but that's a top up on the previous. So perhaps we can we can start there. You know, what, what exactly, well, who are Aries first? And maybe maybe that's the best place to kind of uh, pitch this because not everyone might be familiar with that with that name. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to dispel the notion that football clubs, uh, soccer clubs are owned either by the fans or by benevolent aged chairpersons and, and it, you know, they've been lifelong fans of the club or whatever it might be. Uh, most, most major league soccer clubs and most Premier League football clubs are obviously owned by a variety of interests that have the intention of getting a financial upside. This is about the love of the sport, but it's also about the fact that these assets are so, so attractive and they're very attractive to private equity. So Aries is a pretty well-known, pretty large private equity investor, I mean, investing across the spectrum of uh, private credit, private equity, secondaries, real estate, everything that you can imagine. And they've been getting pretty active, as many other private equity firms have, they've been getting pretty active in buying interests 
in various different sports and at various different interest levels within the sport. You know, you can obviously buy the whole team, you can buy a chunk of the team, you can buy the commercial rights to the commercial operations, you can buy all sorts of different carve-outs of a particular cash flow within that team. So what Aries has done since 2021, this is when Beckham uh, bought the company, uh, bought into Miami uh, with, uh, with Mass, with the Mass Brothers. Okay, nice. Um, Aries has invested a total of $225 million into the franchise, into, in, into, into Miami. And the reason why they've done this, well, you can speculate as to, as to exactly what their deal rationale was. But if you think about the combination of the attractiveness of David Beckham within a sports franchise, and now the increased attractiveness of Messi, the world's most famous footballer in a sports franchise, the location of Miami as the kind of the capital, the Latino capital of North America, huge, huge football base located in Miami, and a relatively cheap franchise cost when you're looking you know, it's comparable to to the NFL or or the NBA or or anything like that, or the English Premier League. You're picking what could be a really, really special, high intangible brand value, high hopefully cash flow business. You're picking it up. It's not on the cheap. They've invested $225 million and the estimated valuation of Inter Miami is upwards of $600 million. So it's not on the cheap, but Aries are figuring, look, you've got some of the most famous sports people in the world associated with this team that's located in such a big footballing city or soccer playing city. We can come in as the kind of suits and 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 talk numbers and talk all right how are we going to rationalize this operation how are we going to get the cash flows pumping in the right area how are we going to sell our you know sell tv rights in the most lucrative manner how are we going to redevelop our stadium which is something that aries will have a lot more expertise certainly than beckham <laughs> uh, and the combination of having a, a sober mind with a massive brand value of flex and 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 messi and also a, a, a huge sports fan in, in Jorge uh, Mas, you know, that that's pretty compelling to me. Yeah, and I, I was just having a look when it came to, you know, being aware of a lot of this news flow. And Messi wasn't an easy person to attract over to Miami, right? Because it was, I mean, what was the time frame when Ronaldo went to the Middle East? It couldn't have been that far ahead of him. And we talked months. about on the pod before about, the aggressiveness of Saudi specifically into trying to, you know, getting to golf, getting to F1, getting to pretty much every sport for, for different reasons. Um, but why was, you know, for Messi, how do you beat out a Saudi club who are, who are, what were they throwing around a 400 million salary they threw at Messi? How can he turn that down? Oh my gosh, 400 million salary, yeah, to move to Al Hilal in Saudi Arabia. And obviously, this maybe two years ago, we would have thought that was total madness. But the precedent has been set by Ronaldo and Benzema and latterly a lot of players coming, you know, and players that are not necessarily past their prime, players that are coming over and 
helping to, uh, well, I was going to say, they're not helping the league, they're helping themselves by picking up massive paychecks. But the offer that Inter Miami provided Messi must have been pretty compelling. Now, we don't know the details of this offer. We don't know the ins and outs of what Messi managed to get as part of this offer, or what, to be honest, what Messi's agent managed to get from Inter Miami. But it wouldn't have been a $400 million kind of bullet or salary package over a two-year period of time. Firstly, <laughs> firstly, we have to acknowledge that although Miami is a really interesting and nice place to live, that's going to, that's going to, that's going to pull Messi and, and probably his family more in that direction. Until Messi joined, Inter Miami were dead bottom of the MLS Eastern Conference, right? They were an absolutely shocking team. And since he's joined, they've won four on the bounce. And, you know, the Messi effect has kicked in. But it's not as if he's joining, you know, a bunch of superstars. And also, if he looks back into history and he looks at the, you know, the, the Pele moved, uh, to New York at the end of his career. You look at Kim um, moving, you look at uh, Rooney, and it often is slightly the graveyard of, of greats. Omri went over there as well. And it hasn't really done, it hasn't really kicked off soccer in the way that we maybe they hope Pele would do back in, back in the 70s. So, what Messi's probably hoping and what he's expecting is A, now is the right time. There is lots of money in sports franchises and lots of money now pushing into MLS, into, uh, into soccer in the US. Two, Messi's thinking to himself, or Messi's agent's thinking to himself, all right, I'm going to get a decent salary package out of this, you know, $20, $30 million a year uh, for the two and a half year contract. That's going to keep me paying my bills. Absolutely fine. But what else can I get that is going to potentially maintain cash flow after the end of my career. So I'm coming up to the end of my career. I don't want the tap just to be turned completely off. So the, the contract that he's negotiating, and we don't know the finer terms, it's firstly, on retirement, he will gain a small, but hopefully not insignificant stake in Inter Miami. So the franchise itself, He's going to be sitting up in the executive box with Beckham and the family cheering on the team. Very nice to think. And secondly, Apple has recently paid $2.5 billion to secure coverage rights of the MLS for the next 10 years. And Messi is going to get a cut of that or, or, or a cut of every international subscription that comes um, from, uh, from MLS uh, subscribers. So he's going to get 10 years of Apple related. We don't know how big the deal is, but you know, you're tying yourself to a pretty amazing brand in Apple. You're hoping that they can get their own marketing cogs whirring. And he is going to get this lovely cash flow over the next 10 years whilst being a part owner of Inter Miami, whilst continuing with his global lifelong Adidas contract that he signed. So he's kind of future-proofing himself with a lot of upside. Hmm. Yeah, and it was fascinating trying to think of like, well, what is the value of that? And and you know, it puts my mind back to to MJ in terms of when uh, he was he was doing his Nike deal. I'm sure people have probably seen now that Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon the Nike uh, film. I think it was Amazon film. Uh, and yeah, I think people 
often forget that Michael Jordan was not the number one pick back in the draft in what was it 84 I think he was drafted so you know he was it was it was interesting because he was a a guard i.e he's six foot six but in basketball land that's fairly small <laughs> the the number one pick was uh Akeem Olajuwon who's seven one and the second pick Sam Bowie I think was seven foot and you had to have a big man as center of your franchise and so um yeah I remember at the time it was a totally it was almost like a giveaway we'll give you five percent a cut on any royalties on your own brand and then you're thinking okay that sounds like a, a, a slam dunk deal for nike because like, he's good but that, we're never gonna have to cough up that much but i remember the numbers were just absolutely like crazy so it's interesting because that was an untested product in jordan who had a lot of potential and then it was about betting on that future potential being realized with Messi. He's coming out the other end. Like you said, his career is about to end and it's about preservation of what he's earned through that period. So it's a nice kind of book ending of that, but I almost feel like without Jordan, there's, and I know there's Beckham engineering a lot of this with the, and Pele it's been happening a lot in football, but without Jordan doing that, there might not have ever been an opportunity for sports players to mm. be in this position, to have this type of leverage to negotiate. And obviously it's compounded now by the brand value. Like we said, Ronaldo on Instagram before, I think where he like commands planet earth at his will when he posts, which is obviously incredibly powerful, but no, I think we'll, we can talk about that, those deals a little bit more. I thought, um, but yeah, if you want to. Yeah, I, 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 just want, I just want to very quickly talk, um, just talk about that, that, that Jordan deal. So that's 5% of future royalties. Uh, Nike owned $5.1 billion last year off the Jordan brand. So Jordan, it's got nothing to do with it. He doesn't design the shoes. He paid $250 million last year. He's not playing basketball anymore. <laughs> he's, just, he's just picking up that check. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is just maybe to bring it back to the world of finance and think about this concept of jam today versus jam tomorrow. So Messi had his four hundred million dollars from Al Hilal today. The present value of those cash flows are four hundred million dollars. Very very little discount because it's going to happen over the next year and a half or two years. Whereas if he's projecting his future cash flows from these longer term deals. The cash flows might be much, 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 much higher if everything goes to plan, but your discount rate that you apply, again, if you're doing your discounted cash flow analysis, your discount rate that you're going to apply to those future cash flows is going to be a lot higher. So Jordan took the view, I mean, again, there probably wasn't an alternative as, as, there, was, as there was for Messi, but Jordan took the view that, look, you know, I'm not going to get my jam today. I think, as you said, he wasn't one of the highest player, salaried players when he was playing. And I think his NBA salaries represent 4% of his career earnings. So he took jam tomorrow and backed himself that he could become the best player and the most recognizable player in this amazingly marketable league. And that Nike was the best partner to commercialize his brand. And he has done incredibly well. And again, maybe this is a bit of advice to, to young people that are that are thinking about joining a startup at some point and thinking about equity you know 
often we love jam today what would you rather have a higher salary and no equity or a lower salary and future equity it's so easy to say well i want the money now but the way that you properly get rich is by being patient and holding out for that jam tomorrow so it's just it's just a really good way of thinking about these like abstract financial concepts and putting them in real life yeah it does help as well that you're michael jordan <laughs> you are you know uh, we've talked messi we've talked ronaldo come on we, we can talk federer we can talk the rest mj's the goat let's let's be, let's be real here. but saying. anyway let's move on because i don't i know you'll, you'll you'll have a counter argument to that that goat statement so <laughs> um let, can we just get some context around the kind of numbers as towards sports franchises and maybe bring in a little bit about you know tying in mj and the nba for example or baseball and hockey and some of these other sports yeah yeah so it's, it's really interesting and i think I, re I responded we had a really good uh chat on linkedin a couple of people posted comments on on the messy story that we broke on on monday uh and we were talking about is this going to work is is messi's brand value going to kickstart um us soccer as a there's a significantly valuable franchise. And I think I spoke about, yes, there's a much higher possibility now than there was back in the day because of the financialization of sports. And I just want to bring out a quote from David Rubenstein. He's a co-founder of Carlisle. He's talking to CNBC in September 2022, just to frame our, our, our next conversation. He said, it's very difficult to buy a sports team and lose money. <laughs> Some people have done it but it's very rare if in the nfl you make money all the time because it's so profitable that's a pretty bullish statement from the co-founder of one of the world's largest private equity firms and now <laughs> to give you a couple of stats and we can explain why this has happened to give you a couple of stats sports franchises since 2004 got a little graph up in front of me Sports franchises since 2004 have outpaced the S&P 500 by many multiples. <laughs> so the S&P uh, 500 has increased from 2004 to 2022 by 317%. That's not bad. You, you know, you definitely take that if you put your money in a tracker fund. But if you had pretty deep pockets and could get some exposure to the NBA, you would be looking at a 1,079% increase in the value of your investment. That's pretty nice. A 10x over, over less than 20 years. Um, the NFL, 610%. MLS, multi-league soccer, uh, multi soccer 1,565% growth. Obviously, that's coming from a much lower base than the NBA, but you can just see how these things are exploding and let's think about let's think about sports teams in the context of a business model and why Rubenstein said what he said <laughs> all right they have a relic they have an incredibly loyal fan base point one they 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 are also an entertainment brand where they can sell you know sporting rights point two so that's you know revenue stream number two they have uh, they have an amazing ability to sell merchandise, etc. So revenue stream number three. They effectively have, especially in the U.S., with franchise teams in particular cities, 
effectively have monopolies, right, over that particular sport in that particular city. And then you've also got the, the excitement and the brand value and the cachet that comes with owning a sports team that bumps up the value of these assets because you've got, you know, trophy asset hunters pumping up the value. Uh, and then you've got the financial sponsors that are pumping up the value and everyone wanting to get in on the game. So it, it, it Rubenstein says, obviously you can lose money. There's plenty of examples, especially in the dark days of the Premier League of, of clubs going bust and overextending themselves and buying too many expensive players when they didn't have the cash flow. But if you're looking at this as a private equity investment, it's a very, very attractive investment. And, and this and this is across all sports, basically. Mm. And so like looking at the appetite then in the PE world to get involved, uh, I'm aware that, is it, am I right in thinking that the NFL, there's no ownership permitted right now, but that's the big one, right? NFL, certainly from a volume perspective, is like the golden goose. But surely these rules then have got to change surrounding like ownership. Is that is that in flux? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the stats are, and 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 it's much looser in Europe and it's much looser in football with regards to football in Europe in terms of ownership rules. Uh, because the franchises are less tied to the cities and, 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 and the funding models of sports, sports franchises in, in the US are slightly different. But in the US, for example, uh, you can only, uh, so an NBA franchise, only 30% of an NBA franchise, i.e. a minority stake is available for sale, and only 20% to a loan investor. Same goes for the for multi-league baseball, major league baseball and the NHL, etc. So a couple of points here. The first is these rules, as you said, have changed quite recently. So it was only in 2021 that private equity firms or outside investors could even invest in NBA in NBA franchises at all. So one of the reasons, again, just thinking about what in, what makes asset prices go up, one of the reasons why asset prices have exploded is because suddenly financial sponsors can get involved in what is a massive pool of liquidity, private equity. So suddenly you've got, you know, a $12 trillion assets under management industry available to access these pretty nice looking assets. And so they're piling in, inflating the asset prices. The second point that's probably worth mentioning is if you can only own 30% or if you can only own 20% of an MBA team, or if, you, if there are rules around total control of a particular franchise or a particular sports team. What other stuff can you own? What other bits of the commercial pie can you get instead of owning the team? So we've seen loads of we've seen loads of deals done from private equity firms buying a whole league. So for example, so for example, Bridgepoint in, in the UK um, bought or created the, the 100, which is a cricket tournament that's happening at the moment, you put 400 million pounds into building this thing, right? So they, they have created the league and the individual franchises run underneath the league structure. And then you've got, an then you've got um, I mean, a lot of investments in TV rights. So the, the deal, well, so I think there was La Liga, a 50 year deal 
to own 6%, and eight, so here we go, CVC Capital Partners, 8.25% share in a company that owns La Liga's media rights for 50 years, and a $1.5 billion investment to acquire a 30% stake in a company that owns the broadcasting rights. So you can see how this stuff is getting, as we love to do in finance, sliced and diced and tranched and put into its own cash flow buckets, and we all get a lovely piece of the pie. Yeah, it's definitely uh, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> if, if, the, if the regulations don't permit it, yeah, like you said, let's, let's, let's uh, you know, human ingenuity comes to prevails and uh, we find a way to to make money but one of the questions then is naively i've always thought that pe firms have a pretty strict kind of investment policy in terms of um ultimately i guess they want to get in flip it and get out and make a ton of money so from what you've described though this sounds like it kind of makes sense i guess in that there's multiple revenue streams of growth and kind of continuous cash flow coming but how do they how do they manage their own book these big pe firms what type of exposure do they allocate to these long plays so to speak instead of like get in get out type of scenarios yeah it's it's really interesting and, it, and it's a different <laughs> it's a different mindset to your traditional buyout fund it's a mindset that isn't let's own you know maybe put a bit of debt into the business try and improve it sell it at a higher multiple make some money which which we all know about it's definitely a longer term cash flow play so it feels more like a kind of real estate investment from that perspective you own an asset that is distributing regular cash flows and quite frankly at the moment, and this is why, you know, private equity is all over these types of commercial rights deals and maybe longer term, you know, good projected forecast cash flow. Because if you think about it, you know, if you think about the way that the Premier League sells its television rights, that's locked in for a number of years. So if you want good visibility over stable cash flows, this is a nice way to do it. It's like taking out a long term tenancy. So you know you're going to get paid. And if you, if, if you think about what's going on in private equity at the moment, that we've discussed it over the last couple of weeks, real struggle for exits. Right? How am I going to sell this company that I bought for X billion you know, a couple of years now? How am I going to sell this and still make some money? But yet I've still got my LPs demanding at least partial, partial, partial returns of the fund or part, some, some form of liquidity event. So maybe this is a way of smoothing a lumpiness private equity cycle and saying well look i've actually got you know i've actually got a bunch of pretty stable cash flow assets so there's still money coming in and then we're going to get the big wins or maybe we'll have to write down some of the losses but we can smooth it out as a firm it's kind of stability over volatility so it it kind of works mm. okay and then just to wrap that up i want to mention david beckham because I know that he has a role to play. I know you said at the beginning that he you know, he obviously played, was it for LA back in the day? And then he obviously got into, into Miami. You said it's been an underperforming club. Um, but like you said, location, demographic, there's a lot of attributes. The, the missing piece of the puzzle might have been messy. So how's, how's Beckham lined up with this? What's his 10-year cash flow looking like? Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. I think he's done pretty well out of this 
and it, <laughs> just thinking about all of the other things that he could do with his money this is probably the one with the the biggest upside so we we again we did a little bit of digging we couldn't find all of the numbers but we can kind of speculate on how he's performing how his initial investment is performing so it's estimated that he put in 25 million dollars to co-buy out uh into Miami back in 2021 which gave him it was estimated a 30 percent stake in the business along with his business partner and along I think with Aries as a as a private equity initial investor so he sat on uh, you know however much the valuation of the company was uh, then it's recently obviously been estimated that the value of Inter Miami has increased from let's say 75 to 80 million dollars which is probably what he bought it for to about 580 590 million dollars so you're already thinking okay two years 80 million into 580 that's kind of an 8x <laughs> return on investment over a couple of years yes maybe he's been a little bit diluted uh through subsequent Aries investment rounds but there are you know there are numbers flying around about how valuable this franchise could become on the back of Messi and someone was saying in 12 months time this thing could be worth a billion and a half now that seems ridiculous but then you look at you know you look at some of the U the the US NBA uh, and NFL sports franchises they're seven eight nine billion dollars now right and they go every time you look at the news another one's breaking a record for the most valuable sports franchise so a billion and a half with Messi and Beckham in a massive city that loves soccer with a global TV rights and Apple, with Apple I think Beckham yeah look he deserves a break doesn't he Oh, give that man a knighthood <laughs> come on sir David Beckham rise <laughs> captain of the country financial businessman of the year exactly how can what? that be and Andy Murray yeah. gets a knighthood at the age of what 27 no comment <laughs> <laughs> cool well look we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up there um yeah it's super interesting obviously to tie in a lot of these concepts into something so uh, in focus right now and something that hopefully is relatable for a very wide group of people so yeah for sure I know that Stephen you had some really great graphics and things that you were sending me throughout the week about sports franchises and like visually looking at the outpacing of the S&P there was a really great one that you know if you want to see that sort of stuff just drop a comment and uh, we'll share some of the graphics in the thread when we post this on the Amplify Me uh, LinkedIn page. But yeah, thank you very much as always, Stephen. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next one. Cheers, Ant. Thank you.